With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Tony Delke. Listen to the Mike Safo podcast. Tony, what's up, man? Hey. Nice you came to New York City just to do my show, man. I appreciate that. Hey, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> like I said earlier, the weather is great. There was no humidity, so it didn't remind me of the South. More, <laughs> more importantly, how was dinner last night? Had a good dinner. We went to Tao with some friends. Uh, I ordered the orange chicken, so I kept it kind of basic, you know, kind of going back to uh, what I liked and like from P.F. Chang, but okay. Tao was a really good restaurant. I enjoyed the rice, and my girlfriend, Nicole, I think she ordered some, uh, what was it? Uh, let me think here. Sushi. It's like a cool scene, though. It's a good vibe and stuff, right? The music was great. Uh, when I, you walk into a, a setting, especially a restaurant, if it has good music, it's going to keep you there a little bit longer. You're going to spend a little bit more money. They know what they're doing. Yes, they do. These New Yorker restaurants know what they're doing. How cool is that big Buddha in the like the center of it? Isn't that, that like interesting? A- I think it's a great place, like I said, to eat at, but also just to uh, sit down with friends or family and just enjoy the environment. And the one thing I would say about New York is just the scenery. You know, you're going to see so many different people, so many different cultures. Uh, that's what makes New York special. You know, it's it's. Uh, a really diverse place to be and a diverse place to live. Now, you're here for a little bit of business. Besides my show, you got a little <laughs> business going on. We're at Jack Dempsey's. What are you going to be doing downstairs in a few minutes? Uh, we're going to have a book signing, uh, shoot the story behind the double zero. My life story growing up in Brownsville, Tennessee. Uh, and I always talk about my, my three Fs are faith, family, and friends. And just having a great community behind me. My family had a set forth a really good foundation for me, having two parents that were married over 50 years, older siblings. Uh, they taught me how to become a man, how to become a really good basketball player. And then just the small town of Brownsville, everyone embraced me, you know, just being a hometown hero. Uh, they made sure I, I kept my nose clean, stayed out of trouble. Everyone knew how to find my parents if something happened. So it was a great atmosphere uh, and an environment for me to grow up in. And just coming from a small town, you know, it's requires a lot more hard work, but you know I knew exactly what I what I needed to do uh, when I started playing basketball if I was going to ever uh, you know fulfill my dream. So the old adage of like a village raising you, so the whole little town raised you, kind of. Yeah, yeah, it was. They made you, sure you didn't step out of line. You know, it, it was the black culture, the white culture. Uh, you know, it was men and women. Everyone was involved, so it was me just really representing the town of Brownsville, Tennessee, and, and the Delk family name, and that's something that I always took pride in, just because of how my parents, uh, how hard they worked, and just like I said, raising eight kids, my mom and dad, and then then just being in that small town. I mean, there's only so many opportunities you're going to have there, uh, but they always gave me hope, you know, built, uh, instilled a lot of confidence in me, and then just like I said, just believing in the hard work that I put into it, that it was going to pay off someday. What took you so long to write a book? Uh, you know, and, and what made you want to write the book? Uh, having Nicole, and Nicole really inspired me, you know, to talk about, you know, the work ethic that's required to make it to the next level. And not only make it to the next level, uh, how can you sustain a, a career over time? You know, it's something that I started started at probably the age of five years of age. And um, 
you know, when I think about it, I'm like, man, I played basketball early in life, and sometimes you can burn, you can get burned out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference and you, and you lose that passion for it. Lose sometimes. that passion, but I think there was a, a love that I had for basketball, and just having older siblings, um, and then just playing. It, it's, it's so funny that uh, in Brownsville, Tennessee, I probably played at every one house that had a basketball goal, and if I saw a basketball goal, I don't care if he was white, black, or old. It didn't matter about the age, the gender, uh, the race. I wanted to go play basketball. So I had an early love for it that, you know, you'll see NBA players talk about the dream, but the dream starts early. You know, when I always tell kids, self-motivation is when it's not parent-motivated, it's not coach-motivated. It's when you get up early in the morning or you want to go do something later in the evening um, and it's – Nothing required, you know, just going to do it because you love it and you want to improve and get better. And you're doing it for yourself. You're not doing it because dad wants you to be a basketball yes. player. That's the biggest point. Well, I, I think the point with, with parents, you know, I think kids try to live up to the parents' expectation. And with me having older parents, you know, they didn't get a chance to watch me live a lot, but we never really talked about basketball. So I never had that added pressure walking into the house and let's say I had a game where I didn't score double figures or I went five for 25. They didn't care about that. So for me, it was coming back home to a household where there was no pressure. My parents were like, how was school today? And uh, for me, it was neat. Yes, I would have loved to have my parents support me, be there watching my games, but it really just helped me find myself. I think so many times parents are at every game. They don't want to miss a game, and then they become coaches. So before you know it, you go from a parent to a coach, and eventually that kid is going to tune you out because my parents had to tell my older brothers, hey, you know what? You've done your job raising him, making him a really good player. It's time for him to be coached by someone other than you guys. So they got the message. I'm glad you said coach. You talk so lovingly about Tennessee. Yes. We didn't talk about this when you did the first podcast. Right. How did Coach Patino bring you – because you're an All-American. Right. Mr. Tennessee basketball. You're McDonald's All-American. Right. How does Patino bring you to Kentucky? I think it's Billy Donovan. Uh, Billy Donovan has such a connection to my brothers okay. who was heavily involved with my recruiting process. Um, you know, when I think about all the AAU tournaments that I played in and when I started playing at 15, you know, I got a, I got a later start than most guys uh, when you think about AAU basketball. Normally those guys started eight years of age, maybe nine or ten. Well, I started when I was 15. So coming from that small town, I had to – get with a team out of Memphis. So I had to drive 45 minutes. And like I said earlier, my parents, we didn't have a car. Okay. So my brothers had to be my transportation to Memphis. And whenever I played a game, I had to drive back home. And if we had a second game, I had to drive back to Memphis. She didn't trust me in Memphis, and she didn't think the city was safe enough for me. And uh, so anyway, just thinking about how I was brought up, you know, from that little small town and, you know, me having to go to a big city and play basketball, me being this country guy, and the city guys had to accept me for who I was. But also, you know, my game spoke volumes uh, for when I stepped on the court. You know, I competed at the highest level, and mainly because I played against my brothers who were grown men. So if you can play against grown men and be grown men, I think you don't, you don't think about teenagers being able to, to be on your level. So that's what I thought about. Writing the book, did it bring up a lot of old memories that you probably forgot about? And while you're doing your research, you're like, holy crap, I don't remember this. Did right. that happen a lot? Uh, you know, it does. It did at the time because, you know, we had to connect with some of my childhood friends. We had to go out and find Billy Donovan, you know, <laughs> and ask him about the recruiting process of driving to that little small town. But, um, you know, Billy Billy was great, you know, as far as recruiting. 
he understood exactly, you know, what my parents expected out of me and uh, the work that I needed to do to improve as a player because, you know, when I first went to Kentucky, most people forget, you know, I didn't play a lot as a freshman, you know, and my books talk, talk about just persevering and, you know, going after playing, you know, like about the fifth or sixth game then watching my peers play and I'm not competing, I'm watching everyone on TV and the phone starts ringing, the hometown wants to know, like, why are you not playing? Oh, some of the people, oh, Kentucky is too big for you. You should have probably went to Memphis or oh. to a smaller school. So you have all the doubters. So that was like the extra motivation, but also Billy just taking time out when I wasn't playing. And like I said about the self-motivation, but also, you know, I was his recruit. So he didn't want to see me fail. You were his dude. I, I was his guy, you know, and to see me come to leave home, he knew I was a homebody. And for me to leave Brownsville and to trust him, because that's what you have to do as a as a high school player when you leave your pro when you leave your uh, high school program, is that now you have to trust some other guys to bring you along. And I trusted Billy, you know, and I knew it was going to be a process, uh, but also I knew it was going to be work ethic and. I knew once I earned my position, my starting position, that it was going to be hard for anyone to take it. So the best thing that could have happened to me and a blessing in disguise was me not being a starter when I first got to Kentucky. I don't know how the outcome would have been. It's weird because that first year you're thrown right on the national scene. You guys was that your fa- you guys lost to the Fab Five, right? Yes. So that's mm-hmm. like welcome to college basketball. That's yes. it. Yes. That's a huge first step. And the Kentucky fans aren't uh, easy fans to uh, embrace. Well, you know, it's, not embrace. They're listen. They're gonna love you. You sign with Kentucky, they automatically love you. Right. But you gotta live up to these expectations. Well, I think when you come in with all the different accolades, that when people see you, they're expecting greatness. You know, because you're not only stepping onto the biggest stage. You know, you are a Kentucky basketball player, and um, you know, having that that accolade over my head of being a McDonald's All American, they're expecting instant gratification right away. But you know, it's it's making adjustment going from the high school to the collegiate level. And then you have a – for me, I had a senior, a couple of seniors that were in front of me. And those guys wasn't going to let a freshman come in and steal their, steal their shine, take their minutes away. Uh, but what it taught me was that, you know, I go back to when I was in, in middle school. And uh, when I was in the seventh grade, uh, a guy by the name of Michael Banks, uh, a good friend of mine is now, we, we spoke uh, a few months ago. Well, Michael started – he was an eighth grader. He started every game – uh, in middle school, and I came in the second, third, and fourth quarter. It was like clockwork. He would play the first quarter, okay. and I would play the second, third, and fourth quarter. So when my eighth grade season came uh, came around, I knew I was going to be a starter. So it was, it's kind of like paying your dues and waiting your time. And also you're learning from a guy that's a little bit more seasoned, uh, has more experience. And that's what I got when I went to Kentucky, uh, you know, having a senior in front of me allowed me to sit back and watch and be a student of the game. Because when you always given, you know, I'm not going to say I was given anything. I worked hard to be a really good high school player, you know, with the help of my brothers, my coaches, my, my, my really good friends. But once I got to the next level, the process starts all over again. Now you become a new tool. You can, there's a new environment, a new scene that you're um, taking part in. And what I had to understand about that level was that you have to compete every day. And one thing Coach Patino always said, you get your minutes from how you practice. So if you miss practice, you didn't play. So there was no days off. And his practices were brutal. I remember They were in some of the most intense practices I've ever been a part of. I hate to admit this, but I'm very good friends with Cameron Mills, and I hate, hate, hate telling people that. And he said game days were off days. 
those were your off days because <laughs> his practices were so brutal. Uh, they were. I mean, <laughs> when you think about, you know, just a, a, a everyday grueling practice of competing against the best competition in the country, and you have to do it every day, you don't have days off. And even on your days off, you want to come in and maybe uh, run on the treadmill, get some exercise stuff. You don't want to lose that edge to, you know, to a guy you practice against because, like I said, those were your minutes. And that's how, you know, you know your family got a chance to see you. You performed it at the highest level. And when those televised games came on, we wanted to make sure that we were playing and people saw us and they would, you know, we run it down the court, they would see that number on the back and that name on the back. And that made them say, hey, I know that guy. Uh, but, you know, it, it really built, built toughness. It gave, a, it gave us a mental toughness that, you know, helped me have a long career uh, on the professional level. And then just like I said, just being a coach and under, understanding what it takes to be the best you can possibly be. And that's coming out and competing and giving your all. And once you're, can, once you're stepped on the court, you give 100%, you know, you don't look back. You know, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't say that just because I gave 100% we lose the game. You know, it's always going to be someone to blame. But you can look at the mirror and you can sleep well at night knowing you're giving your all. Have you been doing a lot of press for the book? Uh, we, we're working on it. We've been doing um, – I've been doing a lot of traveling. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like promoting the book but also promoting the wine, uh, promoting the Tony Duck Basketball Academy, uh, the IMAC Regeneration Center that opened a few weeks ago. So we've been, we've been really busy. And we're going to officially do something uh, – we plan on doing something big in Lexington uh, probably in, in the next couple of months. When people talk to you about the book or they want to bring you up, oh, because it's 22 years now, what's the one thing everyone always talks about? Is there like one moment everyone's like, Tony, this, like with stupid camera, it's that shot right. against Duke in 98. <laughs> what's the one thing everyone always says when they see you? I, I think it's, it's probably, you know, me taking a three in a championship game. And like I told someone, I say it was a great flop by me. When you, it, when it, you fell into, well, the, into yeah. the bench, right? And, and, and I told him I, I never got touched. I say it, it was <laughs> It was my one acting moment back in college that most people remember as, oh, you got hit and you got fouled. I was like, no, he didn't touch me. But <laughs> I sold the call, and I ended up getting a four-point play. So it was the play that people remember, you know, hitting the seven threes in the national championship game. Um, it had been, I think, 16 or 18 years. Maybe 1978 was uh, the last time we won before we won it in, in uh, 96. So you talk about 18 years that Kentucky had gone without winning the championship. So for that city, I mean, we was on a high. And for us being uh, young college players, you know, we didn't know what, what to expect when we came back from New Jersey. And uh, just having thousands of people <laughs> waiting on us at the airport, uh, driving back to uh, the Wildcat Lodge uh, back during that time. And just the next probably four or five months, it was total chaos. See, I was going to say, why'd you miss five three-pointers in the championship game? That's what I was going to say to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you this. The reason that 96 team, so I fell in love with the team in 92, grew up here in New York, fell in love with the team. We talked about this earlier. 96, the first game I've ever went to was the UMass game. Oh, man. So you win that 96 game. Right. And this is a true story. They leave. I went to the game alone. I'm like 14 years old. And I went back. And there's a line now to line up to um, – get tickets because you sleep outside. Right. And my mom's sitting in her little Chevy Cavalier, and she's like, er, er. I'm like, Mom, please let me sleep outside, <laughs> please. And she saw all the Syracuse fans, like, pounding beers. She's like, right. get in the car. You can watch that game at home. So right. I watched that game at home, and then I get spoiled because you win in 96. You left, though. Then right. 97 championship game, 98, 98. they win. So I'm, I was spoiled. I'm like, wait a minute. We don't win it every year? Right. That's not how it happens. <laughs> But I, I think when you have, you know, Coach Patino did a, a phenomenal job of recruiting and getting the right guys to fit into the system that he implemented, you know, each and every day. 
And, you know, you have to really get the best athletes to perform at that level, especially when, you know, we press a lot. So you need 12 to 15. You need bodies. Uh, but also we had athletic bodies. And, you know, we learned how to play the game, you know, from a um, cerebral standpoint and understanding that you have to play without the ball, setting good screen, helping your teammate, making an extra pass. Uh, we did all those things. And then he made sure that everyone had a, had a skill set. Everyone had to know how to dribble, pass, and shoot. Um, you know, you think about how the game is, the landscape of the, ba- of the NBA, college basketball. Well, we, we put five guys on the court that can make threes, you know, back in the early 90s. That was Coach Patino's philosophy that threes are, are better than twos. So if you took a long three, a long two with your foot on the line, uh, before I got there, they said he would take you out of the game. But, okay. <laughs> you know, he, we, we had so much talent, he let us play, and we, we just enjoyed playing. I think, you know, we, we worked so hard on defense that the offense was our time to have freedom. Nine dudes go to the NBA. That's not normal. You no. can't. It won't happen now. No, no. <laughs> let, let me actually, I know you're probably going to be biased. Best college basketball team last 25 years? Of course. It, I, I, don't see, I don't see how it isn't. In your book, because I'm really stoked about it. You, you wrote some copies, right? And yeah. you're going to be signed downstairs. You talk about your time in the NBA? I talk about just the journey. You know, I, I think being a journeyman and, and not really having the stability that I would have that I would have liked. Um, you know, being a good player on pretty much all the teams and uh, becoming a role player. You know, um, the times where I had the best opportunities were, well, were probably in Boston, Phoenix, mm-hmm. uh, and even in Dallas before. You know, I had a couple of different injuries that uh, – Couple of different setbacks, uh, I would say. Wouldn't be no injuries, but you know, just getting the opportunity to play how I did in high school and in college. You know, it was at a t- couple of different stints, and I had so much to give. Um, and the coaches that knew my game, you know, I was only with them with those guys for years, so I really didn't get a chance to have the stability to be an assistant for four or five years, like some of the the great players. Mm-hmm. And then I think people would have saw how valuable I was to a team or to an organization. And that's what I just really. When I look back on my NBA career, I'm like, I was wish I could have had more time with, with one particular team and could have spent more time there. See, that's what bothers me. And this is I'm – a, I'm a Knicks fan, unfortunately. I'm a Knicks fan, but obviously every Kentucky guy, no matter what game it is, NBA league pass. Now, there wasn't the league pass back then, but now if you're a Kentucky guy – so obviously I followed your career. Right. You go to Charlotte. Two years, you're gone. You go to right. boy, you're going around. It's like, dude, Sacramento, give him like three years, mold himself. Yes. And was it frustrating for you? Because here's the thing that bothered me, and I don't know if it's come, I didn't play in the NBA. Right. I know you told me beforehand, no, you definitely played in the NBA. I know, you, I know you think I did, but you're on the team. People know, like, they wanted you. So teams right. traded for you. I want Tony Dell. Right. Why didn't it extend maybe three, four years? Because that third year is the, the pivotal year. First year, you're like, what yeah. am I doing? Second year, okay. Third year is your big step, and you're right. always gone. Well, also, I think coming in, you know, they try to convert me to being a point guard. So I never played the point, you know, I was a combo guard. Could I play the point? I got better in my, in my latter years. I was a better point guard than I was early on. And, you know, so it, it was more the label. You know, instead, instead of saying Tony Duck is a guard, he rebounds, he defends, he can score with anyone, um, and that's what I—that's what I didn't like. You know, was that they wanted me just because of my height, just to play a certain position. But how the game is now, it's a positionless game, and no one is saying, that, okay, you six one, you have to be a point guard. You know, when Steph is out there, or you see guys like Damian Lillard, those guys are are scoring guards, mm-hmm. and there are guys that can also they, they can facilitate. But they're not just saying that we're just going to stick you on the court and play you at this position and you can't be a shooting guard. Um, I like 
this game now because I will be my game will be tailor made for how the game is you right were, now. You were 10, 15 years yeah before my time. You really were, and that's mm-hmm. not just me. And, 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 I, and I still yeah. competed at the highest level mm-hmm. against the Kobe Bryant's and Michael Jordans. Um, I didn't back down from any guy, you know, because I had a great leaping, I had great leaping ability, had these long arms that you know <laughs> stretch, you know, across uh, the Nile River. But I just think just playing the game the right way, you know, when you get a player like me that played in the system, like you said, I would have loved to have been somewhere three or four years in a system like a San Antonio Spurs where. You know, you see players improve and get better. Because when you come in uh, to this league as, as a young player, you know, you're, you're not in your prime. So you're still young. You're still filling yourself out. It's like a boxer in the first couple of rounds, you know. You're feeling time, your way. Feeling your way. And by the time that fifth round comes around, you know, you know your opponent. And I don't think I had enough time for a coaching staff, an organization, just to give me that time to flourish as a young player. And know, that, and know and say, hey, you know, this guy's going to turn into a really good player. You know, he's going to be great for our organization because, like I said, you know, I was a professional early on. And, you know, I credit my parents, my brothers. So when I came in, I was an asset to any organization because you didn't have to worry about me going out and disrespecting the organization, the brand. And that's something I took pride in. So I don't think, you know, me being an early investment, they didn't see all, all the potential that I had. And that's what I hated about when my career ended. You know, I was like, man, I could have been so much better if they had given me X, Y, Z. But, you know, I still got 10 years out of the NBA, and yeah. I'm still proud of it. Yeah, well, obviously you should be, but it's frustrating. It's like you'd see the box score. Forget about that 50-point night. You'd score 24, 27, and, yeah, Tony Duck, yeah, because he's a scorer. Like, yeah. it didn't surprise anybody, but no. yet it was like, why not fucking push that up a little I know, more? I know, I uh, know. Best and worst thing about playing for all those teams, like two years, two years, one year, two years? I think just moving, you know, just – Uprooting at that time, I didn't have a family, so it was easier for me to leave myself. But as soon as you think you have a home, and you're like, man, you know, I feel comfortable here. I like the, I like the organization. I like my teammates. And before you know it, it's like, oh, Tony Duck is in on another trade, and my contract was easy to move at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, when I go back to the only time I really had, I would say freedom, when I became a free agent, uh, was when I left Sacramento. You know, when you get drafted, you go to whatever team drafted you. And after my three years were up, you know, I got traded to Golden State. I spent two years there. I knew I wasn't going back there. You know, I just really didn't like what the organization, uh, how I was coached. I'm not going to say the organization is a is a first-class organization now and had a great fan base during that time. Uh, it was just that, like I said, um, a coach wanted to play me as a point guard and not give me my opportunity as a shooting guard or say, hey, you know what? I'm going to play you because you're a good player. Put me on the court because I'm a good player, not because you label me uh, to be a, a, a one-dimensional guy. I'm, I never was a one-dimensional guy. Even my last year playing professionally, professionally overseas, I thought that's how my career, like the coach saw me as a, I want you to just do this for me. And I brought so much to the game because I worked on every aspect of my game. And I don't think coaches understood how much um, I worked on my game from as a little kid, middle school, high school, college, and I wanted to be a complete player. But no coach saw that in me. And when I see guys, and even as I train kids, I try to teach them to be a complete player, you know, not, you know, a shooter, uh, mid-range shooter, have a post-game, three-pointer, be able to pass, rebound, defend. There's so many different elements and so many moving parts of the game of basketball. I try to teach that to my kids. 
it's just wild thinking about the NBA because you have guys now that come like, oh, he was a problem in the locker room. He was this. You were none of that. You were just nope. Tony Dell, good player, really good player. Yeah. You have to take pride in that, though, don't you? And also being a great locker room guy, I think the, the, toughest, the toughest time I had was when I was in Atlanta. And um, I was the second – actually, I was the second or third leading scorer. And I was averaging like 12, 11.8 or something off the bench. Okay. And the following year, we drafted a lot of young players. And I was on the, uh, the injury list pretty much till after All-Star break. <laughs> Wasn't injured. So really – and I remember telling the GM, who was uh, Billy Knight at the time, I said, man, why don't you trade me? And, you know, because I knew I had value. I knew there were teams that wanted me, and I knew I can go and help a veteran team. But they wanted to uh, play their young guys, which I'm, I'm, I was perfectly fine with that. Okay. But don't have me sitting on the bench, you know, knowing I still can contribute to an organization or to a playoff contender. And while y'all try to basically uh, tank the season and try to, you know, give these younger guys, you know, uh, some experience, so that was the one season that really I look back, I was like, I should have been more outspoken. You know, I should have went to the media, should have went to my to my um my agent at the time and forced a trade. And eventually I ended up leaving and going to Detroit, signed a two year mm-hmm. deal. And um, you know, another thing happened, I opted out of that deal thinking I was gonna sign back with Detroit and Joe Dumars didn't bring me back. So it's to me it, it was it was not trusting people. Like like I don't I didn't when I left the NBA I didn't trust organizations. I didn't trust GMs because of what happened to me my last two years of playing professional basketball at the highest level and supposedly having a good relationship and being a man, going to another man and telling him, hey, this is what I'm going to do, and sticking by your word. So the honesty and the loyalty was trust was lost uh, during the last two years of my NBA career. That sucks. It's like they take advantage of good people who are like – we know it's a business, but sometimes you, you find out it's a business a little too late. You know what you find out is, is late, but also I always feel like, you know, when you do people wrong, it's going to come back. Oh, of you course it does. Of time. course. Might not come back, you know, that year, but I just knew me being a good individual and, you know, not really being a bad locker room guy, not going to the media and telling them and crying to the media and trying to blow up an organization. Uh, I think I was a, a, a professional because I knew the game was going to end for me at some point in time. So I didn't want to burn any bridges. You know, I was like, you know, let me just end my career. So when I went overseas and played in Greece my last year, and when that season ended, I started thinking to myself, is this how my career is going to end with a coach not really kind of messing with my minutes and playing me the first quarter, not playing me the third and fourth quarter, playing me the first half? I'm, you know, I figured I was too old for that. I said, you know what, let me just walk away with pride and dignity, and that's how I left the game. First time walking on the court against Michael Jordan. What oh. goes through your mind? I had this conversation with someone about a month ago. Okay. You know, they asked me about, like, you know, who was your favorite player, you know. And I said, I remember playing against the Bulls. And Michael, you know, probably had about 20 or 30 pairs of his shoes. You know, he's the guy I idolized and uh, a player that I looked up to. And I remember stepping on the court. And I get to a really funny story. But when I was with Charlotte, uh, I remember uh, Dave Cowell was hoping to go in the game. I was like, man, I get a chance to play against the greatest player in the world. You know, that, that 96 team was really, really good. And uh, I remember stepping on the court. I'm like, man, I'm playing against the best player in the world. Like, I knew I had a rob. You know, that's when you, you can look back at your career and say all that hard work and playing in the backyard with uh, getting my shirt dirty, blood, playing, walking uh, across the cross town, driving the bike, riding the bike across town, playing against my brother like, 
then I'm playing against the greatest player. And I remember just stepping on the court. I was like, man, I want to guard but I don't want him to dunk on me. So <laughs> long story short, let's fast forward two years uh, down the road, and I'm with Golden State Warriors. And this was when P.J. Carlissimo was the head coach, and he, uh, he, you know, he goes down to bench, Tony, go in, and are uh, you going to guard Michael Jordan? So I'm like terrified. I'm like, man, I, gotta, I really got to – like I'm not guarding for a possession. You know, it was, it was easy guarding for a possession, but he was like, no, that's your assignment. I was like, oh, man. <laughs> So before I can get in the game, I'm already sweating. I'm like, <laughs> a drilling is, is, is through the roof. And I remember going out there, and uh, Brian Shaw, who was a good friend of mine, he was like, hey, this is how, this how you need to guard him. We're going to help you. And I was like, I need all the help I can possibly get. <laughs> but the great thing was I think he played a game the night before against the Lakers, and he didn't have his legs, and he didn't have a great game. I had actually, I think I had about 18 points that game. Uh, and on MJ. On MJ. And MJ had – he might have had in his 20s. He didn't score his 30, 40, or 50 points. But i never forget, you know, I had my one of my really good games against a person who I who was my idol growing up. And it was just good. Uh, I have I have a picture in my basement now of him actually holding me. I'm getting ready to come off a pin down. And uh, so being a good scorer, you're going to play against really good players and to get a chance to play against Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Clyde Drexler. There were so many – Reggie Miller was so many good shooting guards at that time that you had to respect. And I love the way the game uh, – it, it was a physical game, but there were so many great players that I learned from. Ever asked for an autograph during a game or after a game? I think I only have um, – in my collection, I only have um, – I just recently got a, a Steph Curry signed pair of uh, Under Armour shoes. Okay. And I have Carl Malone, believe it or not. That's a random one. Yeah, it is. It is. But Carl, but uh, Carl Malone took a liking to me, and uh, remember after one game, say, hey, you know what? Can I have your shoes? The only pair of shoes I have signed is Carl Malone's shoes. Yeah, it's funny. I'm not an autograph guy, but I always ask other players. You're playing against these guys, and in your mind, like I'm on that level. I'm right. playing against this dude. I'm gonna. I hope I'm not wrong with this. When you get drafted, Dell Curry was he on the Hornets? Yeah. Who's a better shooter, Steph or Dell? <laughs> wow. Um, well. I lost against Dale quite a bit shooting, and, and I, I consider myself to be a really good shooter. And I was telling, I was telling Steph about how, how, how prolific of a, of a you know, shooter or a great shooter his dad was. He was a marksman. But um, I think his dad, being 6'7", he had such a quick release, and he shot the three effortless. And not to say that Steph doesn't. Mm-hmm. Steph is a, is a really great catch and shoot, off the dribble, coming off screens, um, and I think where Steph is at right now, Steph probably is a better shooter. But, you know, uh, the DNA from uh, from Dale, you know. Oh, it definitely went down there. It definitely did. All right, I'm going to keep you for a couple more minutes, and we'll go downstairs and sign some books. 22 years ago is when I got re- got introduced to Tony Dell. 22 years ago, if someone told you during that game, you can be an author and have a wine, your <laughs> own wine, what would you have said to that? I would say absolutely. I Oh, really? Okay. You know what, what I would have said? I probably would have thought, let's say, 22 years ago, I still would be playing right now. Okay. <laughs> That's what I would have told somebody. I'm, I'm going to play until till I am about 50. But the body, the body don't respond. I mean, even when I finished playing in Greece, you know, when I came back home, I never forget how bad. It's funny, my Achilles are sore right now, but they were sore then. Like, both Achilles were sore, and this was back in, like, 2007, 2008. I was, and I said to myself, do I want to get up every morning and have to worry about either tearing my Achilles, icing? I just want to be able to walk because there's so many injuries that you sustain from 
when you start playing that I don't even think kids understand. You know, when I talk to them, I tell them, you know, it took me 17-something years to make it to the NBA, but I don't even go through all the surgeries, the, the, the twisted ankles, the back, the knee, the cuts to the head, the stitches that you're going to receive. There's so many times your body get beat up. You know, even I got knee one time in the, in the quad muscle, and I missed about maybe a month. Two different ankle injuries where I missed a month. You know, ham, pulled hamstring, strained calf muscle, sore Achilles, big toe, ankle, you know, the surgery, knee. But there's so many things that I'm thankful for, you know, just to be able to get out on that court and play and perform at the highest level and, you know, just the opportunity that, that I was blessed with. Now, with your wine, I just had Rick Meyer on, the old quarterback from Notre Dame, and he says he loves the wine company because right. it's like a competitive business. Do you feel it's competitive, or are you doing it more for a fun aspect of it? No, no, no. We're we doing it as a business. You know, we just went out to Silver Oak, um, got some good ideas from them, started brainstorming about how we can build it, build our brand. And Nicole is really behind, you know, the wine business. You know, it's forth like, you know, she's going to become a distributor. And that way we can really push our wine more in Kentucky. And eventually, you know, we want to get it to – all the Wildcat fans, you mm -hmm. know, so that's that's where we want to touch them. But then we want people who don't know us, the strangers, the people. That's when your your wine is really selling well. When someone who doesn't know you, they buy your wine. And having a reasonably a Chardonnay and a Cab, you know, we want to try to cater to all different cultures. And that's what we really focus on is having a sweet wine and having a wine that's in between. Then also having a wine that's aged in Black Bourbon barrel for a year. Uh, because bourbon is so big in Kentucky. So we're really going to concentrate on uh, Lexington, and then we're going to try to grow it throughout the state of Kentucky and then try to hit more southern states. That's fun. I'm excited about it. I'm gonna try, I remember I told you when we first – I never tried a glass of wine in my life. That's true. Oh, you haven't? Big beer drinker. Never had any wine. we got to bring you over to the, uh, to the wine. I think wine – and plus we have a lady, man – it is, it's classy. You know what I'm saying? It's classy to have your lady drinking wine instead of drinking a beer with you. Yeah, well, we're looking right over. She's a big beer drinker over we, there. We're so. going to change. We're going to we're 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 change bit. that. I'm, I'm not even worried about that. We're going to change that. We're going to step step it up a little bit. Thanks for saying it on the mic. There you go. Let me ask you a question. Your number's retired, which is an awesome thing. Your ceremony was awesome. And I always love that Coach Calipari <laughs> talked because, you know, I, I just always love the whole – Calipari, you beat him right. in 96. And I need to know this. Why your number double zero is retired and yet people can still wear it? Please tell me that. If you think about uh, college, so many guys are going to come through the program. Mm -hmm. And you just can't take numbers, especially at a, at a school like Kentucky that's rich in tradition. It's like, it's like the Boston Celtics, you know. So many numbers are retired, you know. But everybody's not going to be a Celtic for 5, 10, 15 years, you know. Uh, it's different in college. You know, college, so many kids are coming through. And every year you might be getting seven, eight kids. Um, uh, it's a little bit harder. Uh, I would have loved to have my number, the first one. Because really, it could have been. It could have been the first number that that uh, it could have been retired and no one could wear it. I think it's like that at, at different schools. Maybe uh, like at a Carolina, I mm -hmm. look up in their banners, uh, in the rafters, and there's, so, there's maybe five or six guys you can't wear their number. Kentucky could do it. Um, and maybe I should have spoke up about it and said, hey, I want to be the first guy that no one ever wears this jersey again. Because the biggest travesty, Goose Givens, he came here. First of all, Goose, Goose comes here all the time. He right. always does a show. Goose's number's retired, 21. Yes. It's a travesty that Cameron Mills got to wear 21. Don't oh get me God. started. On <laughs> Cameron. Cameron wore 20. How horrible is that? That's horrendous. That's embarrassing yeah. to Goose. You know what? what we should, <laughs> this is what we should start. We should have a committee in Kentucky. 
And if if you are, let's say, top ten in the top ten players, okay, or even top five, however you want to vote it, is that your number should be retired and no one should ever wear your number again. So let's start that right now. And I agree. Listen, you're a great player, Dwayne like, Peavy. Yeah, he can he can make it happen. Oh, let's get it. Let's get it going. Okay. I know this guy uh, Tony Delk. He won the the Final Four MVP. Yeah, he if, probably make some if, calls if you, for me. If you don't have <laughs> feel like this, if you don't have a banner up there, then your number shouldn't be up there. I agree with you. I asked you this, and I don't remember your answer. You and I are here now. You want to impress everybody. Who's the coolest dude right now? If you texted them, they would text you right back. The coolest guy? Oh, man. I, I don't know. You know, I, I like my homeboys. I like my friends. No, no, no. You know they, what? Everyone always says, oh, oh, my kid, my mom. My, right. I want right now. You want to impress everyone. You take your phone and be like, all right, boom, uh-huh. I'm going to text you. Who's the coolest dude? If you text them, they would text you back. I have a couple guys. I have to go with Shaq. Shaq is Shaq is my frat brother, so you know we. Oh, and so if you text it to you right, that's yeah. a good answer. Yeah, Shaq, 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 Shaq really is a good, good dude. Yeah, you know, and we've always we always communicate because when I'm on when I'm on internal studios, you know, we'll come in and do our our secret handshake that no one knows about. Is it returning so handshake? It's returning handshake, so no one, so only Shaq and I can do it <laughs> internal studios. So that it makes it kind of special. You still watch NBA or eh? You know what? I, uh, when I started doing NBA TV this year, mm-hmm. I started watching more of it uh, just to make sure, you know, when I go on, I know exactly what I'm talking about and make sure that, you know, the flow of the game, uh, I have good chemistry with the host. Uh, and then just being on there with NBA guys. I mean, I think that's something that I really enjoyed uh, more than being uh, an analyst with the SEC Network. It was good. Uh, I think it helped spearhead me into, you know, being a better analyst with, with Turner Studios. But then you pigeonhole to just SEC when now the NBA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 I, and I think being an SEC analyst, I'm going to always be biased. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard for me not to, you know, be biased to the school that I won the national championship at. I went back and coached there. I have so much to love. And it was hard for me. And, Tony, God forbid you talk trash. Like, oh, Kentucky didn't play I really well. can't do that. A yes. million people. Oh, I yeah, would have wrote you 80 know. times on Twitter. Is there any hope for my Knicks? Really? Uh, how, much, how much time do we have <laughs> to, to Wait, do this interview? <laughs> we're we're going to wrap it up. But do you want to hear what uh, the Knicks stream is? I'll tell you. We got Porzingis. Okay. We just drafted Kevin Knox. I like Kevin Knox. Love him. And here's the big rumor. This is, like, how you sell the fans. Next year? Butler and Kyrie. That's what like all the Nick fans are hoping for because Kyrie mentioned like he might come to New York. So we get Kyrie Butler, Porzingis Knox. Right. So y'all praying again and y'all hoping that <laughs> <laughs> y'all, y'all hoping there's a miracle out there and, and a savior is coming. I really don't think it's gonna happen. But you know what? I, I it would be great for the city if they could get Butler and Kyrie. But you know, it starts with the coach. I think David Fizdale. Yeah is a great coach. He was with me uh, my last year in Atlanta. I really like Fizz. You know, he's very knowledgeable about the game. Uh, he's a player's coach. I thought he um, got a bad deal in Memphis. You mm-hmm. know, they didn't give him a, uh, in his second year, you know, a chance really to show his, his coaching ability and how he could really help an organization out. And I think with this, you know, it's going to be tough here because, like I said, the press is tough, the fan base is tough, but you have to give him time. It's just like I said earlier about being in an organization you have to get coaches, you know, at least three or four years to get their players in, to get the system in play. And um, I know it's going to be tough here, but you have to get those veteran guys, guys that you can trust. And I think that's what Fizz is going to try to do is build a different – bring a different culture here, and it starts with bringing really good players here. I'm going to ask you one trivia question and then one final question. Trivia question. You're drafted 16th overall. Right. Who went 15th? 
Who went 15th was a guy by the name of Steve Nash. Very good. Okay. What's, what college did he go to? Santa Clara. And what team drafted him? Come on, Phoenix Suns. Okay. I mean, listen, I'm, 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 a, <laughs> I'm, I'm a Steve Nash guy. Steve Nash and I played together. So, of course, I'm going to know Steve. Okay. Now, know his you get drafted. You're celebrating. Yeah. While you're celebrating, who gets drafted 17th? That's a good one right there. That might be Jermaine O'Neal. Damn it. <laughs> All right. Who drafted him? I would say Portland. Damn it. Now, Tony Depp, we finished with this. Tell me your most intimate secret that you never told anyone. No. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Now, just give the plug to get to where to find the wine, where to find everything. You can find the Tony Duck Lorenzo's wine at tldelkenterprises.com, tldelkenterprises.com, where you can find the wine, the book, what's going on with the Tony Duck Basketball Academy, tldelkenterprises.com. Please check out the website. Tony Duck, thank you, my friend. Enjoyed it. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.